Hello and welcome to The Food Podcast, a show where personal stories are shared through the lens of food and today through the lens of travel. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. It's the kind of show you only know about if a friend takes you, one who knows about things like this. We are in London at an open studio event deep in the depths of Shepherd's Bush. We visit photographers, ceramicists, painters, and jewelry makers, and then lastly, a textile artist studio. I'm familiar with this room. I feel at home here. You all probably know my Aunt Sandra by now. She is a fiber artist and a weaver. This means that she and the artist here in this studio makes art from thread, more or less. Pinned to her white walls are fabrics, some tiny, the size of a book jacket, and some long, like a table runner. Each one was stitched on a loom, either a large wooden structure with a bench that the artist sits on, and they weave like they're playing the piano. Or a small wooden frame can also be a loom, as long as it has grooves in it to attach the warp threads. This is where threads are strung parallel, vertically. And then other threads are woven through these vertical supports over and under, over and under to make a weaving. Weavings can be simple or elaborate. It's up to the artist. Here in the studio, the weavings hanging on the walls are strips of colors, creams and greens and golden browns. And in places, they stretch the boundaries of how I understand weavings to be. There are green shapes like patches of moss and further up a golden arc of color like a rolling hill after a harvest. And woven in there too is a stalk of wheat and then pale gray tones that look like the English sky. It's like the artist went for a walk, collected shapes and memories and pieces of nature and then returned to the studio and documented them using her loom. A few days later, I continued on to France to visit my old friend Cécile, who I shared an apartment with in Aix-en-Provence when I was 21. She still lives there, and I go back often. I've documented each trip in different ways over the years. That first year in Aix, I kept a journal where I recorded thoughts and new words and drew pictures and glued ticket stubs and random memories into the pages. Later, I recorded trips through recipes, letting whatever was in season set the tone for what I ate and what I remembered. Eventually, it became photos in an iPhone, small squares building up in the thousands that I only looked at while waiting at the doctor's office, scrolling through my pictures. This time, I want to see these memories in a weaving. It will be a metaphorical one, where I will collect objects, smells, tastes, and textures and frame them in a loom. This episode is the story of my imagined weaving from a trip to France. The weaving begins the night before I left. I sit up late into the night at the kitchen island knitting. I am determined to finish the gift I am knitting for my friend Cecile. It is already hot in the south of France where she lives. Wisteria has come and gone. Her zucchini plants are in full swing. 
And here I am making her a scarf in the summer of soft wool and mohair, two threads woven together to give stability and softness. I chose a rich blue-green for this project, but as I knit in the weeks leading up to leaving, I wonder if I've chosen the wrong green. I am used to mossy greens, deep evergreens, and the green of the Atlantic Ocean, tinted by the blue, yellow, and red tones of sea plants beneath its surface. But this is a turquoise green, a blue-green. It feels foreign in my hands. My mother looked at it when the scarf was shorter than a finger and said it was a Mediterranean blue for a Mediterranean woman. So I continued on, the metal needles clinking in my awkward hands. The first row of the weaving, then, is a Mediterranean blue scarf tapered at the ends, thicker in the middle, with a cord detail running along the edge. Somehow I also have to weave in Michelle Zahner's Crying in H Mart, the memoir I listened to while knitting most of this little scarf. Kimchi is woven in, inspired by the author's efforts to make kimchi herself, filling her kitchen with jars of spicy cabbage at various stages of fermentation. Her words inspire me to make Hetty McKinnon's oven-roasted pierogies with kimchi and Brussels sprouts that night. Soothing and spicy, and it is made from things I have in the kitchen. The Mediterranean blue clashes with the red spice of the kimchi. But this is the beginning of the story. The heat of Marseille hits me when I exit the airport. I am overdressed, lugging the winter coat I bought in London in a moment of textile passion. It doesn't fit in my carry-on, so I have a weighty bulk of nylon embellished with a touch of shearling tucked under my arm. I board the bus just as it begins to rain. By the time I reach my destination, the rain has turned to apocalyptic hail. I drape my jacket, which I am now grateful for, over my shoulders. Cecile's car pulls up beside the station. She tells me her courgette plants are filled with holes because of the grêle. I'm in France now. Zucchini is courgette, and hail is grêle. I weave the word grêle across the thread to form a second row. It is a new word for me, and it gets stuck in the threads. Cecile buys courgette flowers from the vegetable market up the road. She dips them in batter and then fries them on the stove. We eat them with sea salt while the rain comes down outside. That's the next layer. I'm reading MFK Fisher's A Map of Another Town, a book the American writer wrote about her time living in Aix-en-Provence in the late 1950s and early 60s. I'm a cliché, I know, reading a book about a place while visiting that place told through the lens of a person not from that place. But I like having her as my guide through this Roman town, filled with water fountains and students and opera and cigarettes and dogs and plane trees with camouflage bark that line the main boulevard, the Cour Mirabeau. So much has changed, but so much has stayed the same. Fisher lived, for the most part, in a rented room in a grand old home hosted by a vieille dame who was trying her best to maintain the grandeur of her pre-war former life, but needs to rent her rooms in order to stay afloat. 
Fisher is aware of the importance of class structure in this sophisticated town and how she, as a naive American, as she's been called, will never quite fit in. But she pushes on, living there, writing, improving her French, building relationships, and making friends with waiters at the famous cafes that line the Cour Mirabeau. Fisher's favorite café is Les Deux Garçons, where she sips coffee or vermouth, depending on the time of day, while her daughters are at school. She observes the wait staff, the students, the gypsy woman who wants to tell her her fortune for a cost, and she feels oversized and oafish compared to the petite French women of X. I hear you, Mary Frances. So do I. I want to ask her why she chose X why a Californian pushed herself, a single mother, to live and work and write on a little Olivetti typewriter in the south of France. She doesn't answer that question in this book. Instead, she paints a map of the town with her words, with her curiosity, through the sound of her favorite fountains and the smell of the dank passageways between the 17th century buildings. Her delight in this place is infectious, and I suppose that's why she stayed. There was a fire in Les Deux Garçons earlier this year. It is still closed when I arrive. Some are saying the fire has to do with the Café Mafia in X. CCTV cameras were strangely disabled when the fire began. The rebuild and the insurance disputes will take a while to sort out. So instead of sitting where Fisher once sat, I find a seat at Le Forbin at the top of the boulevard. It's filled with tourists, but the people watching is great, especially the well-dressed elderly ladies on their way to the market wearing silk scarves at their necks with shopping carts and little dogs following behind. I weave a third layer of café crème along with a soft croissant that pulls apart easily and flakes on my plate. Cigarette smoke from the café swirls in there too, along with the clamor of voices and trickling fountains and tiny dogs and honking Vespas. A few days later, Cecile and I leave for Fayence, a small village east of X. We are going to a Taiwanese tea ceremony with a friend of Cecile's, tea master Margaret Ledoux. Margaret is English, but married a French man, and together they've lived in many places, including Taiwan. I love the idea of tea and the calming nature of tea drinkers, but I don't know anything about it. I make it at home sometimes, always with tea bags in an old stainless steel pot. We park on the gravel next to a wall lined with red roses. I can hear water trickling behind a cluster of poppies swaying in the morning sun. Before the ceremony, Margaret leads us through a session of qigong, where we stand firmly on our bare feet and find balance and breathe. By the time we sit down at Margaret's beautiful table, set for a tea ceremony, with the doors open leading to the garden and clusters of jasmine peeking through the door, I am in a state of deep bliss. So blissed am I that when Margaret passes a long wooden scooper filled with dried tea for us to smell, I commit the biggest faux pas. I touch the tea. You can see that it's a bold 
tea or tea that's been, I call them pearls, tea pearls. You'll see, it's the leaves. Oh. Oh, I don't, <laughs> no, don't touch. I, I'm so sorry. Well, it's, it's only us drinking yes. it. Yes. <laughs> I knew it was... Erase. I know, erase that. I knew yeah. as soon as I did it, I had done something very bad. Okay. So unsanitary, I'm so sorry. Over the course of an hour, we sampled three teas, three times each, each varying in strength, aroma, and flavor with every addition of boiling water. Margaret pours our tea into a tiny thimble of a cup, then pours the thimble of tea into another tiny bowl to sip from. This way we can inhale the essence of the tea from the empty thimble before moving on to sipping the tea itself. The tiny porcelain thimble is warm in my hands and against my cheek and under my nose. I smell maple syrup, then caramelized sugar, and later, something brighter, almost citrus. This is what happens, Margaret explained, as the leaves unfurl with every soaking of boiling water. The aroma and flavor of the leaves shift, deepen, and evolve into something new. Sipping the tea revealed other notes, dark, rich, and even smoky at times. It's the tea that produces the tea has 30,000 polyphenols that as, as the, through, throughout, depending on where it grows, what the climate's been like, uh, when it's picked, uh, how the artisan makes it, and then how it's prepared here, mm. um, those polyphenols will be broken down and they will produce different aromas. So the possibilities are endless, actually. Completely mm. and utterly endless. All things good can be smelled in tea, <laughs> which is, um, makes it a very, very special drink. Once one's learned how to listen to the tea and to, mm. to really take one's time tasting it, mm. then one can be truly surprised. And, I mean. My favourite tea, Ruby Jade, is woven through the next layer with its dark buds that slowly unfurl with each addition of boiling water. I can smell white-starred jasmine outside in the garden and in the tea, and honey and the sour, salty sweetness of the dried plums we are served afterwards. I weave all these things through because all good things can be smelled in tea between poppy stems and trickling water. We're in Le Barou now, where Cecile's father's family is from. She has brought with her six eggs that she collected from her hens that she keeps at home in X. The hens eat the cast-off and battered vegetables from the organic shop up the road and leftover organics from Cecile's kitchen. I would eat anything that these hens eat. Cecile boils the eggs for just three minutes, and we eat them from egg cups and dip torn bread into the liquid inside the shell. The egg is cooked, but it's so soft inside, like a sauce seasoned with a good pinch of sea salt. We sip Taiwanese tea from large mugs. It tastes soothing and delicate. After we eat and wash up, I walk down to the cafe in the village. I appreciate the tea. I understand the tea. I take time with it, but I still need a cafe creme. I sit at a table outside, 
and finish M.F.K. Fisher's book. The last row of my weaving is the soft brown of an eggshell and the bright yellow of a yolk, and the sound of men and women laughing at the bar inside while they sip their coffee, and the church bells, and the frogs in the fountain, and the ache of leaving, and the joy of going home. Thanks so much for listening to this story of my trip. This series is edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme song, One More Night, is by singer-songwriter Jen Grant. Please rate and review the Food Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And perhaps sign up for my newsletter. It's called Food Stories. And the link is in the show notes, or you can head over to Lindsay Cameron Wilson substack.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson.